Welcome to the Risky Business Podcast. Uh, this podcast is an in-depth look at country risk around the world. Uh, in part, it is um, based upon the TXF country risk ratings. You can go to those ratings if you click on at www.txfnews.com slash country risk. Rebecca, Asia Pacific is a rather big region, so it's quite difficult to cover within one episode. But can you talk us through some of the main trends you've seen over the last few months in terms of the country risk data? So you're absolutely right. Asia is huge. Um, and um, I think there are really three things that are that are in the region at the moment. The first is obviously deteriorating US-China relations. Um, it's it's very difficult to understand um, the region as a whole unless you understand China and China's influence across the region um, because China's supply chains have extended across the region and any relationship with the United States, um, particularly in trade terms, is going to threaten other countries as well. So that's a key driver at the moment that we, ne we need to be very aware of. Now, China's played a long game here. China's taking it, playing it very cool because China wants to be seen as a big globalist and China's relationship with the World Trade Organization is strong and it's appealing to the World Trade Organization, playing a World Trade Organization game um, because it's the only game that it can. And in a sense, China has a lot of cards in its hands, not least the fact that it has very strong, um, very strong military interests now as well. So that, that whole deteriorating um, relationship between the US and China is evident in the data, it's evident in everything in the region, and it's also evident in some of the things that China's been doing, so particularly um, building up activity in the South China Seas um, and its exercises with Russia. Now, on another level, the second thing is obviously the US relationship with North Korea, because that involves the whole of the region as well. Oh, well, not the whole of the region, but I mean, the, the whole of the region has a very strong interest in all of this. Um, now, on one level, we can all celebrate because it looks like uh, the United States and North Korea aren't going to wang nuclear missiles at each other, which we thought they might do even this time last year. So, um, you know, to some extent, that risk has abated a little bit. But it's very fragile and you've only got to look at, um, you know, the tweets that come out every so often or the sort of sensitivities around it. Now, we've heard just today, which is uh, the 24th of July, we've heard that, um, that North Korea is visibly... Um, taking down and dismantling some of its nuclear structures and that's been news that's been happening and there's evidence that um, the sanctions pressure has actually helped North Korea come to the table um, but that's particularly been China's relationship with North Korea so to some extent that's a that's a good news story in the region but we need to watch it because there are there are fragilities around it and both sides are perfectly capable of saying something erratic that, that destabilises. And then the third thing that I think to me is a big concern in the region um, is, is, as with um, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the risk of um, ISIS. Um, because there are a number of countries, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia has always had um, an issue with extremism, um, but particularly the Philippines and Indonesia who have high levels of terrorism anyway um, and, and are likely to become more fraught in terms of um, 
in terms of their terrorist and the threat of terrorism because ISIS is moving into those regions and seeking to increase its influence. Mm, that said, you've got Indonesia actually moving down in terms of risks overall. So what, what else is going on within your, your metrics that's a more positive story there? Um, so Indonesia's um, stability, Indonesia has had um, over, the last, um, over the last couple of years has had political and economic issues um, which have abated. So it's become more stable. And the other thing is that um, because its new regime has started to tackle terrorism um, and to place um, the emphasis on moderate Islam as opposed to radical Islam, it's become more difficult. So if I was saying, is it going to be the Philippines or is it going to be Indonesia that 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 um, attracts the more or the larger number of um, ISIS-type um, influences, it's going to be the Philippines. Because apart from anything else, uh, the extremist groups within Indonesia aren't particularly allied to the ISIS groups. But Indonesia has had a very hard clampdown on terrorism and a very hard clampdown on corruption as well. Um, and because it's been relatively stable politically for the last for the last um, eighteen months, and because that's meant that it started to address some of its economic issues again, that's that's meant that its uh, risk rating has stabilised. In fact, gone down a bit. Okay, and there's a, a number of other sort of countries, um, sort of Vietnam and Thailand, that have also been quite quite stable as as well. Uh, can you talk to? Is, is there much change there? Or no, I mean look, uh, Vietnam is um, <laughs> Vietnam is being touted as a role model for North Korea at the moment, which is you know if you're going to be if you're going to be a, an authoritarian um, regime, then try the Vietnamese model because it's actually quite capitalist and quite safe. So um, there's the, Vietnam is is um, it's having discussions with Russia, but actually its real interests lie with its relationship with America and it has very strong strategic interests in the South China Seas as well. So it's very important that, that Vietnam keeps its overall regime stable. Thailand has had a good few months, um, not least because of the rescue um, the rescue of the football team from the caves. Um, and that's put it on a very positive on a very positive footing. So a lot of this is about soft power. But again, <clears throat> that the, there is a real desire in Thailand to move away from curfews and the you know the idea that the military is running uh, the country towards a more stable democratic process so Thailand is is actually is actually quite stable at the moment mm -hmm. and that stability is also in Malaysia um, despite some threat from the terrorist side um so Malaysia has had um, Malaysia has had um, terrorist challenges um for for a long while because it has um a, a strong um number of um of a strong radical islam component to what it does but uh, the regime is actually quite stable um they're, they're, the elections um are being run um in a way that's relatively stable and steady so malaysia itself is actually um not a country that's seeing its risk profile increase particularly Okay, and moving sort of further for the north, um, the, the, well, the, the the country second in your country risk rating is Pakistan. It's a rating of four hundred twenty-two point eight five overall, only just below um, Ukraine, uh, and that seems to be going up as well in your ratings. What accounts for that? Um, so there've been 
in the last um, six weeks, actually, during the election campaign, there have been a lot of terrorist incidents. So a lot of this is about internal conflict and terrorism at the moment. Um, Pakistan itself as a nation has a desire to be, um, you know, fully integrated into the global system. Explicitly, it states that it wants to have um, to have um, a, a mechanism for trading with the West. It is a, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's trying to integrate itself to a greater extent. But the political processes within the country are at the moment militating against that because um, there's a lot of there's heightened threat of terrorism um, during the election campaign. It's been every time there's a rally, um, there's been people killed. There've been there've been bombing incidents. Um, in fact, um, p- the Pakistan regime itself recommended that that certain groups weren't um, holding um, referendum. Uh, weren't holding election rallies anymore because of the threat of terrorism at them. Um, So a lot will depend on the outcome of the election that's coming up. I mean, there's there's a rumour that Imran Khan will come back in and that will end the dynastic rules of um, the, um, the, the, particularly the Bhutto regime um, and so on. So Pakistan has been dominated by these dynasties and and that's created conflict as well. So if it can start to move away, then maybe there's a chance, but there are always so many risks of extremism and of conflict with India and its geographical position and it's becoming strategically important for China as well. There are a lot of risks associated with Pakistan. And well, and India has a has a risk of of two hundred sixty three, which is also relatively high, ninth in the list overall, and and rising by twenty eight percent. Is that sort of due to sort of conflicts in Pakistan within Kashmir, or is is there other issues at play there? It's it's because of terrorism and it's because of internal conflicts. As the government itself has been stable, so I mean the government, Modi's government, has done a lot to promote uh, the country. It still has a problem of haves and have-nots. It has a huge rural poor, um, which has been excluded from a lot of the benefits of. Um, economic development, which has been very focused. The government has focused a lot on uh, corruption and has clamped down on corruption and tried to make things uh, more streamlined. So that indicator has stabilised. Um, but if you look at its foreign policy risk, because it's it's um, it's increasingly aggressive towards China because of um, because of China's relationship with Pakistan, apart from anything else. But India is in a conflicted position. It wants a relationship economically with China, but not necessarily politically. And then you have got threats of terrorism as well. And that's really where, um, and, and the threat of external conflict with Pakistan is still there and it's still high. Okay. Uh, and and sort of stay, staying on the topic of, of India as well, obviously we saw last year that there was um, uh, the, the move to take certain notes out of circulation and uh, and obviously to, to sort of stabilise the and repeg the currency related. Has, has that sort of had any, is that, is that still seen as, as, as a risk in, on some level or, or, or not really? It, it's actually quite interesting because if you look at the press and you look at what's been said about that, there was a huge furore at the time. And this is one of the reasons why you need to take the noise out because anything that is a dramatic change at any point in time will create a lot 
lot of noise um, and create a very short-term risk. Um, but that short-term risk goes and actually um, the economy and the indicators have stabilised since then. And um, the, the, there have been some fairly grudging reports that actually maybe it wasn't a bad idea. Um, you know, it, it created some short-term hardship, but in the grand scheme of things, maybe it, maybe it wasn't a bad idea. And I think, I think you know, you have to distinguish between what's important at a macro level and what's having um, very horrible effects at a micro level. So, I mean, this created a lot of problems at a micro level. It's a bit like um, tariffs, if you like. They create problems at a micro level for specific industries. And, you know, that's why those sectors will complain about it. But at the macro level, sometimes they do good and sometimes they have very little make very little difference and the notes and coins thing um, actually in the end seems to have um, stabilised now um, and become a lot less of an issue. Okay and 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 finally moving back to China um, the the Belt Road Initiative obviously is going to have a, a huge impact across the region but it's actually been in play and been talked about for you know several years now is it something that has has made any detection in the in the trade data that, that you've seen? Um, no. Um, so at the moment, um, in the same way that uh, US um, bilateralism is to some extent rhetoric, um, a lot of the Belt and Road Initiative is also rhetoric because there's a lot of money that needs to be invested before it starts affecting trade. So there's a lot of money that's going into investing in infrastructures and railways and ideas. Um, that money needs to be raised. Um, but you also have to remember with China that the, the policy, the foreign policy mantra is um, hide your light, bide your time. So you're quiet when you feel that you have um, economic or political power. So China is actually being relatively quiet on the tariff side of things because it holds a lot of power. It's been quite noisy about One Belt, One Road. And the reason why it's been quite noisy is because actually the Chinese economy is strong. I mean, we'd all die for the amount of growth that China has, but um, but it's weaker than, than the Chinese government would ideally want it to be, um, which means that it has to attract foreign investment in because it can't raise more debt to pay for, pay for the initiative. So it's making a lot of noise about it as a counterbalance to American policy in order to encourage investment um, and encourage um, international money into, into that, that mix. So we're not seeing it evident in the data, we're seeing it evident in the press. Okay, thank you. And just a reminder, you can go to txfnews.com slash country risk for a detailed analysis and data on all the countries mentioned on today's podcast. 